Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read a few verses from Colossians chapter 3. And it's just going to kind of serve as a backdrop for what we're talking about. You'll kind of get the gist as we read through it. The title of the sermon is Relationships, What's at Stake? So Colossians chapter 3 is just going to serve as a backdrop. I'm not going to do an exegesis on the passage. We'll just kind of let the spirit of it penetrate us as we read it. And then we'll move on to some of its broader implications for our lives. So Colossians chapter 3, we'll start reading together in verse 12. It says, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We believe it to be inerrant and infallible and absolutely authoritative, and we also believe it to be powerful. We believe that when the Holy Spirit works the Holy Word, it is transformative in our lives and so in our communities. And we ask that you would work in us the picture of relationships and the exhortation to be right relationally in this passage is beautiful. We ask that you would give us kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Lord. That you would teach us to be compassionate, help us to bear with each other. We already know we're going to fail each other and offend each other. Lord, we ask that you would help us to forgive each other. And teach us as the church, capital C, and a church to put on love. And to be more like you as we worship you and do life together. And so, Holy Spirit, please come and anoint me. Help me to communicate these truths and cause them to be transformative in our lives for the glory of Jesus. We ask it in that name. And the church all said, Amen. Amen. Well, last week, we talked about the fact that as Christians, we are committed to relationships. As Christians, we are committed to being relational, loving God, firstly, and loving others, secondly. The reason that we are committed to that is not just because it's a nice idea or not for sociological reasons, but because God is that. God exists as relationship, as the Trinity, and God is intensely relational. And so we are called to be intensely relational. And what's happened is that the cross of Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God. We've been brought out of broken relationship into wholeness, into right relationship, into newness. And so now we, above all the other people on the face of the earth, have as the redeemed image bearers of God the responsibility and the enabling by the Holy Spirit to be relationally right with one another. 
We have a responsibility and an enabling by the Spirit to be relationally right with each other. Now, we understand that theologically. We've been talking about that. It's imperative that we get that, that we truly lay hold of these theological truths because theology shapes behavior. What you believe about God will affect the way that you live with people. Theology shapes behavior. And imperatives need indicatives. An imperative is a command. An indicative is a statement of fact. The Bible is full of commands that are the result of certain facts. You have been made brand new in Christ, therefore glorify God with your body. Things like that. Imperatives require indicatives. Theology shapes behavior. It is not enough for the Christian to simply say to one another or to culture, As Christians, we do thus and so. And as Christians, we do not do thus and so. It's not enough to just state what our behavioral standards are. We have to be able to explain and understand to each other and explain to the world why Christians do certain things and don't do certain other things. We always need to supply the why, the theology behind it, the indicative, the truth that transforms always needs to be supplied. And the truth is, we love each other. I love you guys. We love each other because God first loved us. We love God because God loves us. And we forgive each other because God has forgiven us. And so we have to start seeing our relationships with other people as being profoundly impacted shaped and informed by who God is, and then who we are through the transforming work of His finished work on the cross. So we understand then that theology shapes behavior, that we've got to get the theology of it. But what I want to impress upon us this week is a sense of urgency. Yes, we got to know the theology, but we also need to know what is at stake. When it comes to relationships, there is a lot at stake. When it comes to being relationally right with each other and getting right and getting over things, there needs to be a real urgency in the matter. Especially if I might speak frankly with Ventura, Oxnard as a community. This community seems to me to be a place within Christianity where there are a lot of broken relationships. It seems to have, as a community, more than its fair share of broken Christian relationships, more than its fair share of slandering and backbiting, Christian to Christian, church to church, more than its fair share of people abandoning churches and leaders abandoning people and failures by both. And I want to say that I believe and I've desperately been praying for a work of the Holy Spirit to heal this community, our community, that God would visit us in a way that is new and redemptive and restorative, and it's got to start with us. We need to capture a sense of urgency when it comes to getting relationally right with people. Here's the interesting thing now. As Christians, we struggle with doing what God calls us to do. We all do. But the problem doesn't seem to be that we don't want to obey God. 
I think for most of us, having been redeemed by the Spirit and being given a brand new heart, generally, we want to obey God. It's just that we don't want to obey God right now. We generally agree, hey God, what you're saying is pretty good. Your ideas about that, it's pretty good, God. I would agree with that. I should do that. It's not a matter that we don't want to do it. We just don't want to do it right now. We're just like my little kids, Isaiah 9 and Daisy Love 5. Whatever it is I ask them to do, they generally obey. They're very obedient little kids. I've been very blessed. It's just the grace of God in my life. Very obedient little kids. But they never do it the first time I ask them. Never. It's not that they don't want to obey. They want to obey. They generally agree that daddy's right. They want to do what I ask them to do. But they never do it the first time. Or the sixth time. (laughs) This morning, my wife and I had breakfast with our kids. And my wife made these vegan scones and fresh squeezed orange, orange juice, and bought the kids little gifts, and we opened up their presents, and uh, I wanted to take a picture of them with their presents to put on Facebook this morning, because I just thought that would be cute. And so I had them, you know, get together like this, and I'm saying, okay, guys, come, get together. Come on, get, get right here, and I'm holding up the camera. Come over right here. And it took them like 15 times for me to say, come over here, for them to actually get there. And then once they get there, just spazzing out. And you're like, just hold still for a second. They were excited about the picture. They wanted the picture. They thought that was good. They just weren't quite getting there right now because there are other things that seemed more exciting. That's us. We, we, we get the picture. We, we want to be in that picture. We see what God is doing. We want to be a part of that. We're just not doing it right now because there's other things that seem more important, more exciting. Other things that we're holding on to that keep us from obeying. Augustine, Christian who lived a long time ago, wrote a book called Confessions. And in it, he talks about his struggle with sexual immorality. Anybody ever struggle with that? None of you? Great. So he was talking about a struggle with sexual immorality, and he prayed to God and said, God, give me chastity, meaning sexual purity. God, give me chastity, but not yet. (laughs) It was a genuine prayer. He wanted to be sexually pure. He wanted to obey God, but first he kind of wanted to do his thing. That is so us. And when it comes to relationships, there is too much at stake to not obey immediately to not deal with these issues right now. What is at stake? Well, the first thing that is at stake is our witness. Turn to John 13, if you would. John chapter 13. John chapter 13, toward the end of the chapter. A familiar passage here, Jesus speaking... Start reading with me in verse 34, John 13, 34. Jesus says to the disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, hold on. That's not the new part yet. That's old. That's OT. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. They're like, that's not new. Look what's new. Even as I have loved you. That's what was new. That you also love one another. And look what's at stake. By this, 
all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love, that kind of love, the kind of love that Christ has for us, for one another. Jesus here links the world's knowing, discovering Christ and responding to the gospel to our love affair with each other, to our ability enabled by the Holy Spirit to love each other like Christ has loved us. Not some ooey-gooey, mushy, silly Hollywood movie love, but real, self-sacrificial, got your back, go into the grave in your place if need be, love. Loving each other like Christ loved us. There are men and women that we know who, unless they turn from their sins and repent, will go to hell. And Jesus links the way that we love one another to them understanding the gospel about Christ. We'll see it again in John 17. He repeats himself in what is perhaps the most important moment in all the gospels other than the cross and the resurrection. John 17, we have the high priestly prayer of Christ. We'll start in verse 17, Jesus praying to the Father about the disciples. So sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, future converts, that would be us, he's praying for us, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me, and the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just like we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you did send me. Jesus inextricably ties our witness in the world to our unity with each other. You saw the theological basis of it is based on the Trinity, God as relationship. He said in the same way that He and the Father are one, we're supposed to be one. There's supposed to be this one essence. Marriage is based on that. It's analogous to that. The two shall become one. And Christian relationships are based on that, analogous to that. That we are to be one as Christ and the Father are one. And that the way that the world thinks about Jesus will to a large degree be dictated by how well or how poorly we do this. And as a church in America, we've done this poorly. We are segregated and separated and mad and finger-pointing and condemning. And Can you imagine if uh, Jesus, on His mission sent by the Father, was always talking just a little bit of trash about the Father? Just a little bit of trash. And about the Holy Spirit. There's this Trinitarian trash talk happening. Jesus is telling people, you need to turn from your sins and repent and come back to God. And then He's like, Father's so legalistic though. The Spirit, He's so crazy. He's just out there. He's too charismatic. <laughs> just a little bit of trash talking. Don't you think the Israelites would struggle with coming to this God? They'd be like, eh, this doesn't seem quite right. And yet we have the same inconsistency in the church. 
We stand as a church, the representative body of Jesus, and we say, oh, come into the community of love. Come into the place where you will be accepted, where there's healing because of Jesus, where we will care for one another and love for one another and sacrifice for one another. And all the while, the secular world sees us backbiting one another. The divisions and the factions and the slandering and the mudslinging. And it's a mixed message. It's a relationally mixed message that causes it to be difficult for the world to see Christ in the church. And what's at stake is our witness. Men and women and their eternal destiny. We are to be lights in the world. If we fail at this loving one another thing, we actually become darkness, 1 John says. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 9, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation for this. It says, If anyone claims, I'm living in the light, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves another brother or sister is living in the light and doesn't cause others to stumble. Others outside the church. Verse 11, But anyone who hates another brother or sister is still living and walking in darkness. And such a person doesn't know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. We are to lead other people to Jesus Christ. But if we're not right relationally, then we ourselves become blinded. We're in the darkness. How can we lead anybody? What a tragedy for us to be deemed light by the redemption of Christ and to become darkness because we refuse to forgive. We refuse to surrender. We refuse to repent. We refuse to get right, to be reconciled. We can't lead others to Christ if we don't know the way that we're going. And these love relationships are so incredibly important. They not only affect our witness, but they affect our winning. The second point. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 if you would. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. You guys know how to remember where um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are? General Electric Power Company, right? Galatians, Ephesians, or Grandma Eats People Constantly. (laughs) Ephesians comes after Galatians before Colossians. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start reading verse 25. Therefore, Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. There's that body metaphor we spoke of previously, the oneness that we have, the connectivity that we have in Christ, members of one another. Look at verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Oh, okay. Be angry part we got. I'm angry all the time. Got that. The caveat is yet and do not sin. That's the sticking point. That's the difficulty. And then look what it says. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. Stop right there. Give me your attention for a moment. Has anybody ever failed in this? Anybody ever let the sun go down on your anger? Yeah, a couple of us. Um, Is anybody like me that sometimes you're so angry about something and someone, something they failed to do or they said about you that you're up all night just seething about it? Anybody else like that? And you're just turning it over in your mind. You're like, I can't believe he said that. How could he say that? I can't even believe he's thinking that. And you're just over and over in your mind. And then it always goes into speculation. You're like, I know what he's thinking right now. 
he's going to say this, and when he does, I'm going to say that. Oh, I wish I had said that earlier. Oh, he's going to try to come back like that, but I'm going to come with this. And then he's going to try to come like this, but I'm going to beat him with one of these. And has anybody else ever been up all night just turning your mind with these sort of wicked thoughts? You let the sun go down in your anger. The Bible says not to do that. Look what it does. Verse 27. And do not give the devil an opportunity. When we let the sun go down on our anger, when we hold on to bitterness, when we refuse to forgive and get over it, listen, it gives the devil an opportunity. That word opportunity in the Greek is the word tapos. It's where we get our word topography, right? It speaks of a place, a location, a space. It's the same Greek word used um, talking about Mary and Joseph in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, where it says, and there was no room, tapos, for them in the inn. It's a space, it's a place of inhabitation, somewhere where someone could be. And when we let the sun go down on our anger and we harbor this bitterness and this resentment, we give the devil a place, a space, room in our lives. It's as if we open up the door of our lives to Satan and say, come in. And Jesus already said that Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. We open ourselves up to destruction to things dying in our life, to relational death, to being ripped off because of things. It gets worse. Look at verse 30. In the same context says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. So when we do relationships wrong, when we refuse to forgive, to get over stuff, to free people from that bitterness we're holding them in bondage to, not only are we opening the door of our lives to Satan, but we're also closing the door to the Spirit. It says don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, can you imagine the state of a Christian who has closed the door to the Spirit and opened the door to the enemy? You see how this relational thing affects our winning, whether we're walking in victory or not, whether we're experiencing all the benefits of the cross, victorious Christianity, when we refuse to forgive, when we let the sun go down on our anger, and we harbor those things, and we want to punish people, we open the door of the enemy, close the door to the Spirit. We're in a horrible place. Now, the opposite of that is a beautiful place, shutting out the enemy and opening anew to the Spirit. That's where we want to be. I think many of us are going to get there today. We're going to repent today. We're going to let things go. We're going to lock out the enemy, and we're going to open up to the Spirit in a brand new, fresh way. That is where we need to be. Brothers and sisters, it is not about your rights Jesus surrendered his rights. It says in Ephesians 2 that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. That he surrendered it in the incarnation, made himself a servant, humbled himself to obedience upon the cross. And yet we have this American thing in us that says, I have rights and they did me wrong. Hey dude, and do that. If you came to the cross, you surrendered your rights. If you are in Christ, you surrendered those at the cross. You died 
in your old nature and you've been made brand new. And it's no longer we who have rights in our lives. Christ has right over us. We've been bought with a price. And what Jesus said in John 13 was love others in the way that I have loved you. And what the Holy Spirit says here in Ephesians and in Colossians is in the same way that you've been forgiven, you must forgive others. And the degree to which we experience fruitfulness is the degree to which we do relationships right. Walk according to the Spirit and you won't carry out the deeds of the flesh. And so many of them are relational from Galatians 5. Bitterness, rivalry, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, conflicts, and disagreements. Where we want to be is experiencing the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's what we need to move toward. And we experience that when we walk in the Spirit, which means we're going to have to walk in forgiveness. Not forgiving people is grieving the Spirit, opening up a door to enemy. And it affects our victory and our fruitfulness, which will affect our wellness. Why is relational rightness urgent? The third point, it affects our wellness. How we are spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Look what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Stop right there for a moment. None of you fails to receive the grace of God. 1 Peter 4.10 says that we are stewards of God's grace. A steward is someone who distributes God's grace. You don't own it, it's God's. You're a steward. You're a manager of a resource. The resource is the grace of God. Undeserved favor, kindness, forgiveness. We're stewards of that. The Bible says here that we are to look out for each other in the body of Christ and make sure no one's coming short of it. That we're all having grace extended to us. People that are really blowing it are having grace extended to us. People that really, really burned you are having grace extended. People that we disagree with, we're extending grace and charity toward them. Look out after each other. Make sure no one's falling short of the grace of God. Second part of the verse says, Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness, catch that phrase, poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Poisonous root of bitterness. First thing I want to say about that is it always corrupts many. Have you noticed how weeds are, uh, they multiply very quickly and it's very seldom just a weed. Oh look, one weed. But there's usually like weeds, like a network of weeds. Bitterness is like this. It corrupts many. We wish that sin would happen in a vacuum, that we could just sin and it would just be our problem, but it's never that way. Sin affects everyone around us and it always affects those that we love most the worst. So if we're harboring bitterness, it's going to defile a lot of people and that's an epidemic that the church in America is suffering from. So we haven't dealt rightly with forgiveness and the church is being defiled in front of our very eyes. Now, we need to deal with that root, that root of bitterness. We need to be asking the Holy Spirit to show us where there are roots of bitterness. It's hard to discover it. By its very nature, where is a root? It's underground, right? By its very nature, a root is underground. It's not the visible thing. It's underground. And so this bitterness is often underground. It's, it's lurking underneath. And we don't discover it until it rears its ugly head. Have you ever noticed roots that like can pop up through sidewalk? 
You know what I mean? They're like, bam, through the sidewalk. You're like, how did that little weed go through the sidewalk? Somehow they do. Bitterness is like that. It's radical in its corruptive, breaking nature. Anybody here ever dealt with oxalis? Do you know what oxalis is? Um, it comes from the Greek word oxus, which means sour. It's also called sour grass. Anybody ever sour grass? Sour grass? Don't eat it because dogs pee on it. But <laughs> so your mom said when you were a kid. I'm sure they don't. Go suck on some sour grass. But this stuff is the gnarliest weed. When my wife and I first bought our house by the grace of God in Carpinteria, um, it was a dump, completely unlivable dump. Had to strip it down to the studs. In the backyard was, well, it was fence to fence, wall to wall, sour grass, like this deep. You know what I mean? And when we bought the house, we thought it was really cool because we did not know the nature of sour grass. We thought it was so cool, we started calling it the sour grass house. We're like, oh, the sour grass house. God gave us a sour grass house. And me and my wife would frolic through the sour grass and run through the backyard, you know, picking them and sucking on them and thought it was so cool. And then there came a time in the remodeling process where we're like, hey, we need to, you know, put a lawn in back here. And I talked to a friend of mine who was a landscaper and he's like, dude, you are so bummed. You have the gnarliest oxalis problem, the gnarliest sour grass. You, it's going to take forever to handle this. So he brought me this industrial weed thing, like this giant backpack on your back full of weed killer. And I was just pumping that thing all the time, all around the house. It was like a biohazard in Carpinteria, my house was. Just killing it, killing it, killing it. And you kill it all, and then bloop, it come back. And you kill it all, and it comes back. And the problem was, the reason it kept coming back was the, the roots. These things have this gnarly root system that goes really, really super deep and spreads out and multiplies. And so you kill one section of it, and there it pops up 30 feet later. And you kill it right there, and it pops up in the same place a little later. And so, dude, I went ballistic on that stuff. I full-on just doused my whole house in weed killer for a long time, didn't let the kids get near it, and... Uh, put a beautiful lawn in, right? One of those ones you just roll out, one of those Insta lawns. They're so beautiful for like a month. And then oxalis, bloop, popping up through my lawn. And at this moment, I am in a life and death battle with a stinking sour grass. I've got the big sprayer thing again. I'm out there just, just blasting this stuff. I'm losing. I am losing the battle against this weed. And the reason is because it's really hard to get to the root. And we seem to have a real problem getting to the root, which is bitterness in our lives. We let it fester for years and years and years. And it spreads and it's destructive. And by it, many are defiled. We need to today, when we move into worship, be asking for the grace of the Holy Spirit to see those roots of bitterness, to see where they've sprung up and to deal with them, that the Spirit would break up our hard ground, till up the soil, pull out those roots, and that we would get free from those things. Bitterness is an unseen enemy. You guys know that my daughter has cancer, and the tumor that she had was congenital, meaning that she had it since birth. It's always been in her. It was always growing in her. And that thing grew huge. Had we not found it when we did, she would have died. Bitterness is like a tumor. It's there, it's growing, sometimes unseen, undetected, until it just works the most horrific consequences in our lives. 
So forgiving people, dealing with bitterness in that way, is a requirement of Christianity. This isn't optional. There's an urgentness. If, if there's somebody you need to forgive, you have to do it now. I'm going to talk about some specifics of forgiveness that will help us. If there's someone you need to repent to and ask for forgiveness, you have to do it today. I'm going to let you take your cell phones out in church in a few minutes. If you need to call somebody, if they're not here and you know you need to get right, because I know what you'll do. You'll go out to Mexican food. you eat a big burrito. you get indigestion. You'll forget about that you need to repent. So we're going to do it right away. Before we do that, to help us along, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 6 real quick. Matthew chapter 6. Again, familiar passage here. Jesus speaking right after He gives the Lord's Prayer. This is a horrible passage and it ought to mess you up. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 14, Jesus says, Matthew 6, 14, If you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. I could soften that blow theologically, I think there's something in us that says that doesn't mean salvation, right? Like, it doesn't mean I'm going to lose my salvation or that I can't be saved until I forgive everybody. No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that in some sense, we fail to experience all the benefits of the forgiveness of God in our lives when we withhold forgiveness from other people in our lives. And that should scare you almost equally. That we somehow fall short of the grace of God, miss some of the beauty of the work of the cross. Jesus said it in even a worse way if you go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Again, a familiar passage. We'll start reading in verse 21. Matthew 18, 21 says, Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Peter thought he was being like super stud here because the Jewish rabbis used to teach that you only had to forgive someone three times. That's where we get three strikes and you're out. I just made that up. <laughs> the rabbis did teach that, but I don't think that's where baseball got it. So Peter's like, dude, I'll double that and add one. Peter thought he was being awesome. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, which we all know is 490. So does that mean that you keep tally and you're like, bro, you're up to 475 right now. You are pushing it with me. <laughs> no, it means that we forgive as often as is needed. Now, Jesus goes on to illustrate how important this is. Verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, okay, it's like, analogous to, here's a parable, it can be compared to. A certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. That was a ton of money in that day. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that they had and repayment to be made. That's what happened in that culture when you couldn't service your debt. Verse 26. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Remember what he said. Verse 27. 
And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him. Notice that phrase, released him and forgave the debt. But that same slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, very small amount of money. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact same thing the other slave said to his master. Have patience with me and I'll pay, repay you. This guy says the exact same thing. But verse 30, he was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves, okay, the other people, when the fellow slaves saw what happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And Jesus finished by saying, So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. I'm not going to explain that away for you. That's what Jesus said. However you want to interpret that, there are some real consequences to us refusing to forgive those who have hurt us. Yes, they have hurt us. Yes, it was wrong. Yes, it was real. But you know what's interesting? Our sin always looks worse on everyone else than it does on us. This wicked slave was like, please, just forgive me. What's the big deal? And he was forgiven. And this guy said the same thing, and he refused to forgive. Some of the things that we're holding against other people that we're punishing them for are the very things that we're guilty for, guilty of. Our sin always looks worse on other people. And I don't know what it means. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart being handed over to the torturer. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. So whatever it takes for us to repent to those we've offended and to forgive those who have offended, we need to do and we need to do immediately. When we don't do that, we are playing God. Romans 12 says that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and that we are to leave room for God's wrath. We're not to take vengeance or justice in our hands. That's not for us. That's a God thing. And James says, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The desired outcome that you have is not going to be achieved by your anger. And yet, yet we harbor that and, and we foster that and that begins to fester and it blossoms and we hold on to it. And we hold it over them and we hold it against them and we punish them. All the while, the Bible says that will not achieve God's purposes. In fact, we already saw in Ephesians that it plays into Satan's purposes. Opens the door to the devil and shuts the door to the spirit. We say things to God like, God... But what they did was so wrong. God says, I know. And we said, well, God, are you going to do something about it? 
I can imagine God saying, what do you think? Well, what are you going to do, God? I mean, it was really bad. God, are you going to strike him dead like Old Testament style? I imagine God saying, oh, probably not. But Lord, and I think God says to us, listen, if you want to play God, just remember that the moment you step into judgment over them, condemning them for that thing, the same kind of stuff you're guilty for, you step into my judgment. Therefore, Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, don't judge and you won't be judged. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. It's not talking about judging between right and wrong, whether someone's behavior was incorrect or correct. We're supposed to do that. We know what they did was wrong. It's the idea of condemning and punishing them. That is God's and God's alone. So forgiveness, then, is choosing not to punish somebody anymore, but to leave it up to God to mete out justice. And I got to say this, that forgiveness isn't an emotion. I know that there's a lot of emotional stuff attached to this, and a lot of us are broken in a lot of ways. And that's real. And we need to allow the Holy Spirit to heal us. But forgiveness is not an emotion. We don't forgive with our emotions. We don't forgive with our memory. We forgive with our wills. It's a decision enabled by the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit. It is choosing not to enter into a lifestyle of revenge, punishment, and getting even. It's realizing that we surrendered our rights at the cross like Christ did. And it's being freed to love one another deeply in spite of what we've done. just want to finish by saying that there are a few misunderstandings and myths about forgiveness that kind of hinder us being able to do it. One of those things is forgive and forget. You ever said that to anybody? Like that you felt like they forgave you, but they didn't forget. And you all forgive and forget. Why can't you forget about it? Listen, there's certain stuff that was done to us that we're never going to forget. We're never going to forget it. Forgiveness is not an act of memory. It's an act of the will. God chooses to remember our sins no more, and yet God is omniscient or all-knowing. So in what way does God not remember our sins anymore? It means He does not hold the penalty of them over and against us anymore. That's what that means. He doesn't hold the penalty of them over and against us anymore. So what does it mean for us to truly forgive? We don't hold the penalty over people. We're not punishing them in our bitterness anymore. We may never forget it. The Bible doesn't say you need to forget it. It says you need to forgive them. Another misunderstanding or myth is that when you forgive them, you'll feel better. You know what? You might feel better. And there's a lot of times where I've forgiven people and I felt better. It for sure feels really good when people forgive me. But you might not. There are certain things that happen in our lives and that were done to us that are never going to feel okay this side of heaven. We all carry those wounds. But forgiveness is not dependent upon how we feel. It's dependent upon who God is and what God has done. It's not a matter of whether or not it makes us feel better. Sometimes we will, sometimes we won't. Forgiving, some of us think, means that we have to move back into that destructive, dysfunctional, unhealthy, whatever it is, relationship. And that's not necessarily what that means. You see, there, there's a road to reconciliation. There's forgiveness, restitution, 
reconciliation, restoration. There's this process. But it always starts with forgiveness. And forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. You can totally forgive someone and still not trust them. Forgiveness needs to be given by grace. Trust needs to be earned by people. That's the way it is. So just because you're forgiving someone doesn't mean you need to come back into their junk. It really doesn't. But it does open the door toward the possibility of more healthy relationships. There are certain people that you will never have a good relationship with. Paul and Barnabas split ways at one time. There are certain people in my life that we're never going to get it together. But it doesn't mean I don't have to forgive them. I do. And forgiveness at least opens the door to the possibility of full restorative reconciliation. And they might be continuing in that sort of behavior, but we're not forgiving them because of who they are. We're forgiving them because of who Christ is. It's not dependent on what they do. It's dependent on what Jesus did. You understand that? You say, well, they're not sorry enough. They're probably not. But we probably weren't either when Christ died while we were yet enemies of God. The last thing I want to say is a lot of us think that if we forgive someone, it means that we're compromising or condoning their behavior. There's people in our lives that have behaved unacceptably. Forgiving them doesn't mean that you're saying their behavior was okay. Their behavior may never be okay before anybody. You see, what you're thinking about is justice. Justice deals with innocence and guilt. Forgiveness doesn't. Forgiveness is something altogether different. God is the only judge. It is up to God to deal with justice, innocence, and guilt. Only God can declare righteous those who are unrighteous. We are called to forgive. It's not an issue of justice, innocence, or guilt. They're guilty. Otherwise, they wouldn't need forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean we're condoning their behavior or compromising. It means that we're choosing to begin a new and better way because of the life we have in Christ, because of what He's done upon the cross. And that is always bolstered by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the Holy Ghost is present in this place today to heal. Some of you are going to need hands laid on you to receive the grace of God to forgive people. Some of you are going to need prayer because the enemy's got such a stronghold in your life because you've held the door open for so long through your bitterness. For some of you, it's going to be a long road, but it's got to start today. Others of you, it's not that you've got to forgive someone. It's that you're the one that rips someone off and you need to repent to them, begin to make restitution and seek reconciliation. But, but whatever it is God wants to do, I believe that the Holy Ghost is present here today to begin a beautiful work in us that we would more wonderfully represent who He is to a world that desperately needs to know about love and acceptance and grace and forgiveness. So if you need to use your phone, you can do it in church today. You call somebody. But if you need prayer, you better do that in church today. You grab somebody. You pray with each other. You come up and pray with a prayer team. Remember you, maybe you need to remember how wounded Christ was for our transgressions. You need to come and take communion a few times, some of you, to remember how Christ was wounded for those very sins that you're clinging to. Lord, give us the grace to forgive. Give us the grace, Lord, to be healed and to be agents of healing. And give us the grace to begin to identify roots of bitterness that are sneaking around in our hearts, Lord. 
We ask that, Holy Spirit, you would come and pour the love of the Father abroad in our midst. We ask that, Holy Spirit, you would remind us of the joy of our salvation, the wonder of the cross, how much we've been forgiven of. Remind us of how amazing our salvation in Christ is. And that in that awe, we'd be moved to extend that kind of forgiveness to other people. Help us, Lord. We need help. We need help. Come, Lord, and work. Okay, guys, whatever you need to do to make some things right today, do it today. Let's do this.